Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you. We just thank you for your name. We thank you that you are just our God. We thank you that you sent your son. And we thank you that he died on the cross. And because of that, we can have a a relationship with him. Lord, as we go through this sermon, I just pray that, that you would speak loudly and that you would just allow me to be quiet. Lord, I pray that as the kids go down, that they would know you more and more and that they would understand the, the beauty of a relationship with your son. Lord, I pray for this hour and I pray that your spirit would be present. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The kids can go downstairs. They have a little tally in the back how many times I'm going to forget it. So, Right now it's only at one. As we go through this series, this series on relationships, it's so important to understand that even though I preach each week, on something different, whether it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can't separate the three. They're one. So as important as a relationship with the Father is, it doesn't happen without a relationship with the Son. And we're not capable of having these relationships at all unless the Holy Spirit is working in us. And then it's lived out in our relationship with others. And so this week is building up a relationship with the Son. One of my favorite songs, and I know a lot of us love it, but is Give Me Jesus. I'm not going to sing it for you. But trust me, you don't want that. But I am going to say it. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I'm alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. And you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Jesus is enough. He's always been enough. No matter where you're at in your day, your relationship, even in your life or death, He is enough. Everything in life is lost when we die except Jesus and those who have given their life to Jesus. With Jesus, when we die, is gain. Paul understands this. He's in prison. Paul is struggling with this choice of life and death. There's people at this time even preaching this this Christ for selfish reasons. It's no different now. And you know he wanted to be out of prison. You know that he wanted to be with his people. He wanted to be with the churches that he he had planted. But even in prison, as he sits there and struggles, Jesus is enough. Philippians 1, 18-21. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out. It will turn out for my deliverance. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Paul, he wants to go to heaven. He wants to be with Jesus, but he knows that God is in control. God has a plan for him, and he's going to trust in that. He knows that Jesus is enough. Throughout my life, I've struggled with depression and even suicidal thoughts. And over the last few years, there's been one thing that has really helped me. You see, even though I have a desire to go and be with Jesus, it's selfish of me. I start thinking, why has Jesus not returned? Because he wants every one of you to be a part of his kingdom. Jesus' delay, Jesus' patience is not being late. It's waiting for every person that is going to give their life to him to do so. What a blessing. Right? If I can wait 50 more years for Jesus to come back, how many more people can give their life to him? Do we want that? I mean, what a blessing to find salvation in Jesus. And that's where we're at when we go to Romans 12. I hope you've been reading it. I hope you've been studying it, memorizing it, allowing it to transform you. Allowing you to point, to be pointed to Jesus. This next verse that we see in Romans 12 really talks about what it means to be in Christ. Let me read it. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. All of us together, one body in Christ. Alone we can demonstrate who Jesus is, but together we speak volumes about what Christ has done in us. Imagine if the world that we live in actually loved each other like Christ loves His church. What an impact that would make in the world around us. And I get it, this isn't revolutionary, but it is true. Every one of us has a different role, a different function within the body. But this one statement that we see at the end, Christ is the head and we get to have a relationship with Him. We get to be in Christ. Galatians 3, 26-28 For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to put on Jesus? It has nothing to do with your nationality, your social status, your sex. It has everything to do with Jesus. And our relationship with Jesus is personal, but it's also corporate. We're to do it together. We're in this together. Look around. I mean, how many people in this room would you hang out with if it were not for Jesus? Now, don't look too long, right? You don't want to make people uncomfortable. 
but it's true. Some people have absolutely nothing in common except Jesus, but Jesus is enough. And I'd go one step further. I would venture to say that some of you look at people in this room and you see them as more family than the ones that are biological to you. In an article on relational theology, Derek Flood said this, Relational identity is not only found in our fundamental need to be loved, but also in our need to love others. To break out of our dehumanizing autonomy and understand who we are in terms of we orientation rather than me orientation. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if we say that we love Jesus, but that love does not flow out of us to others, I think we need to evaluate. And so what does the Bible tell us? Especially in this church, another Bible-believing church. This is, this is our document. This is the most important text that has ever been written. But if it doesn't point us to Jesus, what's the point? Right? This text should point us to Jesus over and over again. Martin Luther once said, the Bible is a manager in which Christ is found. Without the manager, you will not find Christ. But you dare not confuse Christ with the manager. We love the Bible because in it we find Christ. And we don't have a relationship with the book, but with the living Word, Jesus Christ. So why do we want a relationship with Jesus? Because there is no greater friend. Because He is spirit and truth. Because He is love. Because He is servanthood. He is forgiveness and He is redemption. Now Jesus is so much more, and I mean this literally. We could spend all the way to next Sunday talking about Jesus. But for the sake of time, I'm only going to talk about these five characteristics. And if you notice, I didn't say that Jesus merely speaks truth in spirit, even though He does. And I did not say that Jesus loves others, even though He does. I said that Jesus is all these attributes. They're the very essence of who He is. And He asks us to put on Him, to put on His essence. Let me explain. You see, nobody has to tell me to love my wife. And she's kind of sinking down right now. She hates it when I talk about her. (laughs) Nobody has to tell me to hang out with my wife. I am absolutely in love with my wife. I spend time with my wife because I want to be around her more than anybody else in this world. Now, as a pastor, my answer should probably be Jesus. But to be honest with you, my life doesn't always live out that way. I want to make my wife happy. I want to do what she asks. And if she wrote me a love letter, I would read it over and over again. I want to hold on to her. I want to discover who she is. And I understand not everybody has that in a spouse, but some do. But I can promise you that all of us can have that in Jesus. And does your relationship with Jesus instill newfound desire for the relationship with your spouse or maybe the people in your life that are most important? But the truth of the matter is sometimes our relationship with Jesus looks a little bit more like a roommate. 
He's there, but I don't really want to have a conversation with him. Right? I really don't want him to mess with the stuff in my life that he needs to change, but I really kind of like. And then, you know, I, I'm okay with him being in my living room, but he needs to stay out of the bedroom. And do we really have a desire for his love letter? Do we really love the people that he loves? I feel like we want the security he gives without the devotion that he deserves. We have to ask ourselves, is it, is it really a relationship at all? Now some of us might even have that with our spouse. Is our spouse more like a roommate? Or are you married to him? Do you love him? And so as we look at this text, how can the attributes of Jesus strengthen your relationship with Him as well as your closest human relationships? So number one, the Son is Spirit and truth. Now we know the truth. Every one of us has read John 14.6. Jesus said to Him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And with Jesus, truth is not just fact. Truth is a living person. John 8, 31-32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, if you abide in My Word, if you abide in Jesus, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now how difficult is this truth? For some of us, not so much, but for the people that we're trying to reach, it can be extremely difficult. And the problem arises when we have to tell the truth. Because to not tell it would be cruel. If we knew that something was going to kill somebody and yet we remain quiet, that's not love, that's hate. That would be so cold-hearted. And this is where the Spirit comes into play. The Spirit is what allows us to speak truth, what gives us the heart to do it with compassion and love. The Spirit is the heart of a relationship. You see, I can speak truth, but I should do it with the idea of giving somebody life. And sometimes I have to say the tough things, but I, I hope I do it with compassion. I hope we do it with compassion. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman by the well. Jesus is walking through Samaria just to meet this woman. He doesn't care that she's a woman. He doesn't care that she's Samaritan. He doesn't care that she's considered unclean. He cares about her. And he tells her some difficult truths. Truths about her life and her five husbands, but he does it in a way to restore her. He does it in a way that, that shows compassion, respect. It shows this, this love. You see that his desire is for her to be saved, not condemned like the rest of the world had done to her. And Jesus says to her in John 4, 23-24, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship with the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is everywhere. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the temple will no longer be a building, but hearts everywhere. True worship is in Christ, not some building. And Jesus wants our heart. 
Jesus wanted her heart. Verse 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is giving her the greatest truth. And he's doing it with such spirit. He doesn't shy away from the difficult topics. No, he goes right at it, but he does it with this love. And so what can we learn from it? I want us to think about how this looks with our children. Really, any relationship. Do you think about how something is going to be perceived before you say it? And then do you say it with spirit and truth? When you speak to your spouse or your friend, do you think about the way you talk to them? Ask your children. Ask your spouse. Ask your friend. And if they don't want to tell you, then that's probably your answer. Jesus, he perfectly demonstrates spirit and truth because he is perfect love. Which leads us to number two. The son is love. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. One of the best examples in the Bible is when Jesus is talking with Peter on the shore after his resurrection. And I love how he gives him three opportunities to really say that he loves him because he had denied him three times. John 21, 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And then Jesus, he says it a second time, Simon, do you love me? And then he says it a third time, Simon, do you love me? And I imagine at this moment, Peter just breaking down in tears because I know that's how I responded to his love. This love that is overwhelming us to tears. You see, I told you last week how I came to follow Christ, but I didn't give you the backstory. I spent my whole life looking for this prestige. I wanted to be well off. I wanted to, to be somebody, but honestly, I felt like a nobody. I ended up building and restoring some houses so that I could get to my dream house because I couldn't afford my dream house without putting the work in. I thought that it would bring me happiness. And as soon as I moved into my house, about a month later, it did the exact opposite. You see, now I had everything I wanted and I was still absolutely miserable put a lot of strain on my marriage. It was getting difficult, more difficult each day. I was drinking a lot to fall asleep, and then I would wake up early in the morning, and I couldn't go back to sleep. I was, I was sleep-deprived, and I remember getting in this fight with my wife. And I remember screaming at her, I don't believe in this Jesus hocus-pocus. I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in my mom's God. Just leave me alone with this stuff. I used a lot more colorful language, to be honest with you. Little did I know that my wife, she takes this information to the ladies in our church, to the, to the Bible studies and the mops, and the ladies in our church start praying. And if you don't believe in prayer, look at my life. We had a baptism in first service. 
If you don't believe in prayer, if you don't believe in God, look at this man, Chad Shelver, as he gets up in that baptismal and he pours out his heart. Guys, I didn't have to say a word. I literally followed him into the baptismal and you see this guy and he just pours it out. It was absolutely the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. I'm going to speak at you for 30 minutes and he said everything that I need to say in a minute. And it was beautiful. That's what God does. That's what God did in my life. I remember coming home, and I wanted a bike, and not a cool motorcycle like most of you. I wanted a bicycle, and I know that's weird, but it was expensive, and we didn't have enough money. And I was like, why do we have enough money? I called my wife every single name in the book. Needless to say, I spent some time working on the road. She finally let me back, and I slept on the couch by God's grace. But that started a cycle where I could just see Jesus asking me over and over again, Zach, do you love me? Zach, do you love me? Do you love me? I think it's why when I pray, I always finish with I love you because it just means so much to me to see that story and how Jesus called me and how he asked me, do you love me? And I hope, I pray that you have the same story. I hope you just have that love that that you can feel and sense Jesus' love for you. See, because he doesn't write us off. He goes after us. He loved me so much that even though I was denying Him, He still died on the cross. And He doesn't expect me to do something that He hasn't already displayed. He displays His love for us in an overwhelming display of servanthood. Do we do the same? If I asked your wife or your husband, if I asked one of your best friends if they would look at your love, would they say it's like Jesus and Peter? Would they say it's like Jesus and his church or his bride? Or is it something different? Is your love about yourself? Or is it about others? Do you serve others? Which takes us to number three. The Son is servanthood. Servanthood is an action. Often I do premarital counseling and I'll work with Ephesians 5.22. Usually women that are in the church, it doesn't seem to bother them too much. Sometimes it does. But women that are outside the church, they really struggle with it. Often they take offense. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. You can understand why the, the world has trouble with that. And they usually do until I explain the reason why I'm using the text. If a man loves his wife like Jesus does, like Jesus loves the church, submission doesn't seem that hard. You see, I usually go to tell him that if you truly love your wife, you'll be the leader of your family, means that you are the greatest servant in your household. It means that you serve your wife, even if that means losing an argument. I often tell them if somebody wins, that means somebody has to lose. And a marriage is not about winning or losing. It's about serving one another in Christ. And men, if somebody has to lose, you be that one. 
Because when we love our families, we should be the greatest servants in our household. So this week, I want every man to pick a place where they can serve somebody else. It might be your wife, a friend, a kid, whatever it is, right? Cook, clean, take them to go get ice cream. Whatever it is, serve somebody in our community. I'm not very good at it. I know most of you aren't very good at it. But I can promise you that Jesus was. John 13, Jesus knows that he's going back to his father soon. And what does he do? Verse 4 and 5. He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't even like touching my wife's feet, let alone some dirty dude's feet that have been walking with no paved roads. And this is what our Jesus does. This act was usually performed by a servant or the wife of the hostess, and Jesus does it right here. And Jesus was making a point. Making a point of what it means to follow Him, to serve others like He does. And of course, the disciples, they don't fully understand it. And Jesus clearly lays it out in verse 15 and 16. He says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I don't always do it very well, but we can work at it. And as men, we should be willing to give up our lives for our families because that's exactly what Jesus did. He laid down his life for those that he loved. We should strive to live like him. And when we mess up, we should be the first to ask for forgiveness. Jesus never had to ask for forgiveness, but he gave it really well. Number four, the son is forgiveness. If we are truly forgiven by Jesus, why would we not forgive others? Some of us have held on to the damage that our parents, our so-called friends, have, have caused in our life. We hold on to the damage of a partner. Sometimes the person that we hold on to the most damage is ourselves. And I want you to know that in no way do I feel that forgiveness is giving somebody the right to abuse you. In fact, it's the opposite. You see, they no longer have control over us. We release the penalty of sin. This, this vengeance we give to God. He didn't design us to be able to hold on to it. That's why He took all of our sin. He forgave all of us. Every one of us who put our faith in Him. And now I don't have to be defined by my childhood, my marriage, or lack thereof. I don't have to be defined by the gossip that's talked about me. I don't have to be defined by my stupid mistakes, my sins. I can be defined by Jesus, the Son who I have a relationship with. He forgives me. And I can forgive others. And I can put all of this on Him because He can handle it. 
I mean, can you imagine? Jesus was betrayed. He was mocked. He was denied. He was flogged. He was put on a cross. He was crucified. And in that moment, we see in Luke 23, 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then they cast lots and divide his garments. Jesus forgives them for everything that they had done, and they're literally stealing his clothes. I don't know a person in here that could do the same. And yet Jesus literally forgives us for not being able to do that. He understands how difficult it is, but he also understands that forgiveness is doable. He did it. He tells a story to help us understand it. The story of the king and the servants. This servant who owed him a debt that he could not repay. Matthew 18, 24. When he began to settle, one was one brought it to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents might as well have been a debt that no one could repay. That's how the people that would have heard this story would have, would have responded to it. Now those people, they struggled with it at that time, but, but what we're about to say is where they would have really thought, this is no way, no how. It says this in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Denarii was a day's wage. So 100 days wages is not some small debt, but in comparison to the debt that he owed, it's massive. It'd be like my income compared to Elon Musk's. It's not even comparable. It's the same thing with sin. You see, sin that committed against somebody else is nothing compared to sin that is committed against an infinite, eternal God. And He forgave us. So we should forgive others. We should forgive ourselves. It's the foundation of His redemption. Which takes us to number five. The Son is redemption. Redemption is this action of regaining possession because the debt is paid. The debt is clear. In this case, Jesus paid the debt so that we could have the possession of life. I started watching The Chosen a few weeks back, and I know I'm probably a little behind. I don't know how many people have seen it. And I have to admit, I really struggled with the first episode. I was actually bored to death. Now, I've heard about it, and everybody talks about how great it was, and I thought, maybe I'm not even saved. I'm joking. I, I know I am. But when I got to the end of it, the end of that first episode, as it started to play out, as this story started to play out, I thought it was one of the most beautiful moments in cinema history, to be honest with you. There was a troubled Mary Magdalene. We called her Lilith, and now that's not in the Bible, but in some Jewish texts, Lilith means to have a demon. This woman, she struggles her whole life. Her dad tries to help her, and he gives her a verse, Isaiah 43.1. The verse is to help her through these difficult moments. Later on, her father would pass away, and life would just get a little bit more difficult as she's struggling. The Bible tells us that Mary had seven demons. And in this story, you see this sweet lady who is just consumed by these demons. She's so desperately trying to get out. 
so much that she's ready to die and she goes to jump off this cliff and then she gets there. God sends this dove. And you see this dove as it starts to, to fly away and she can't help but follow it and it leads her back into town where she goes to this pub. And at this pub, she wants some alcohol. The guy doesn't want to give it to her, but he finally does. And it's sitting in front of her, and she goes to reach for it. She's going to drink away all this sorrow, all this pain. And you see Jesus, just at that moment, reach down and grab her hand. And you have goosebumps. And the demon's mad about it, right? He doesn't want any part of it. He, he pulls away, right? And Mary starts to walk away. And Jesus doesn't just let her walk away. He goes after her. And he says, Mary... And she turns around, who are you? And how do you know my name? And then Jesus says something so beautiful. Thus says the Lord who created you. And he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isaiah 43, 1. And then he gently touches her face. And she's free. She begins to cry, and then she melts into Jesus' arms. And at that moment, it made me cry. Because I started to think of the relationship that I have with Jesus. How he sees me and how I see him. And I know you're all thinking the same. These trials, these struggles, the demons that we have. Every one of us at some point in our life. But yet the one who created us. The one who formed us. He reassured us and redeemed us and called us by name. And at that moment, we went from death to life. And that's what Jesus does. We are in Him. We surrender to Him. We speak truth and spirit from the heart. We are loved and therefore we love. We begin to serve. We are baptized in Jesus. We die to ourselves. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. And we are made new. And none of this was possible without Jesus. None of this was possible without the Son. Forgive me if I get a little emotional when I talk about this relationship with the Son. I can't imagine my life without Jesus. Where would I be? Where would you be? What would a life without Jesus even look like? And we had that at one time. And I know not one of us would go back to a life without a relationship with Jesus. How do we take on these moments when we find out that there is cancer? How do we take those on? I have no way to understand how a world could ever begin to understand how we take that on. But with Jesus, with Jesus, it is absolutely possible. With Jesus, it is enough. And I hope so desperately that all of us can experience Jesus like that. And so when you're going through the trials, when you're going through the temptations, you have Him and He's holding on to you. And He won't let go. And because of Him, we are free. We are free indeed. Let's pray.
Father, we love you. We love you so desperately. We love you for the little ones that you give us. We love you for the signs of life in this church. And we love you for the next generation that gets to see you and have a relationship with you. Lord, I know times can be difficult. I know not every moment is, is easy. But with you, Jesus, it is worth it and you're enough. Lord, help us to hold on to that fact, to never let it go, and to give you glory and honor and praise in all things. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.